Exodus 4, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning, like I said, we're moving into a new sermon series for a few weeks before Advent, calling it Surprised by Scripture. We're, we're going to be looking at some of the perplexing passages in our Bible. Now, a casual scroll through Facebook or Instagram, even a children's Bible, quickly reveals the way in which we have domesticated scripture. We have tamed its stories. We have reduced its message to inspiring quotes or motivation for your Mondays. Now, there is enough uncertainty and discomfort in our lives. Surely we should be able to count on scripture to be a place, a source of comfort and certainty. Oh, but our God is not easily domesticated. Neither is God's word to us. A preacher I know once remarked that his church gives the Bible to each uh, third grader when they graduate from Sunday school in good faith that these small children will not read it too closely. <laughs> because if they read it closely, then they'd have some questions that maybe we're not prepared to answer. Why does God tell the Israelites to kill a bunch of people? How can David be called a man after God's own heart when he is guilty of adultery and murder? What's with all those weird images in Revelation? And this morning, why on earth would God try to kill the very person he has just told to go to Egypt and rescue his people from slavery? We could try to avoid these questions by sticking to the more comfortable parts of the Bible, but instead, over the next four weeks, we're facing some of these questions head-on in good faith that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, as Paul tells Timothy. And what's more, we trust that the very God who we read about in the Scripture will encounter us today even as we wrestle and question and ultimately rest in faith that God is good and all God's ways are right. Now Moses is a very familiar Bible character. His story can be summed up in a handful of words, basket, river, burning bush, ten plagues, red sea, walking, walking, ten commandments. Walking, walking, walking. His story is pretty familiar. This little scene that we read this morning is less familiar. God has met Moses in a burning bush. God has finally convinced Moses now to go to Egypt and plead with Pharaoh to let his people go. Now on their way to Egypt, Moses and his wife Zipporah and their two kids unpack the car for the night and settle into the motel to get some rest, so to speak. 
As they settle into rest, something happens. The Lord meets Moses and intends to kill him. How did the Lord meet Moses? Was it as a person Moses wrestled with, like Jacob? Or an illness suddenly brought on by the Lord? We don't know. The narrator doesn't seem too concerned to tell us those details, because however the Lord showed up, the real problem here is that he intends to kill Moses. But why? Well, this isn't the first time someone has tried to kill Moses. And so maybe we can use scripture to interpret scripture here. Maybe the other time someone tried to kill Moses can help us understand why God is trying to kill Moses. Who else wanted to have Moses killed? Pharaoh did. You might recall the story from a few chapters earlier in Exodus. One day, Moses saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And even though Moses had been adopted into the household of Pharaoh and was not a slave himself, he somehow now knew that the Hebrew people were really his people. He was so distraught and disturbed by what he saw that he retaliated against the Egyptian slave driver and killed him when, quote, no one was looking. Obviously, a deed like this does not go unnoticed, though. Maybe the Hebrew man returned to his house that night and told people what happened. We don't know. But the next day, Moses went out to Pharaoh's household again. This time, he saw two Hebrews fighting. He tries to break up the fight. But the men turn to him and look and say, who made you our ruler and judge? What are you going to do? Are you going to kill us too, like you killed that Egyptian? In other words, who pinned a star on your vest and made you the sheriff in town? Who gave you a robe and a gavel and made you the judge? Pharaoh gets wind of this and tries to have Moses killed. Why? Well, Moses is now walking around Egypt, exacting his own version of justice. He's acting like he is the new sheriff in town, like he is the judge and the jury. This isn't going to work in Egypt. Pharaoh wants Moses to know that he is the ruler and the final judge, not Moses. So what does that have to do with our story this morning? There's not a lot to go on. But from what we can tell, apparently Moses had not circumcised one of his sons. Who cares, though? Well, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant relationship with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. God had commanded Abraham, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for generations to come. And this is my covenant that you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised, every male that is eight days old. Now, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. Moses, it seems, has decided that this covenant sign, well, It doesn't really matter that much. God has more important things on his mind to worry about, like delivering those people from slavery. But Moses isn't in charge. He doesn't get to make that decision. From God's perspective, it probably still looks like Moses is walking around like he's the guy in charge. 
God and Pharaoh have this in common. In each story, they are the ruler, the final judge of things. And in each story, Moses seems to think he gets a pass. He can murder someone, probably no one will care or notice. And now he doesn't have to circumcise all his sons. He's decided for his own family what the terms of the covenant will be. But God does not give him a pass because he's like generally a pretty good guy or something. When we read that the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him, this is God saying that you don't get to be part of my people, let alone their leader, if you don't keep the covenant like I commanded. I am the judge and the jury. I am the sheriff in town and the final ruler of my people. You, Moses, are not. Now, if God is telling Moses that he doesn't get to decide the terms of the deal, he doesn't get a free pass on the covenant responsibilities, then I wonder if we might be right to hear a word of warning in our own lives. Seems to be a common experience, I think, for people with a certain amount of power or privilege like Moses had to kind of think the rules don't really apply to us like Moses thought. I mean, most of us probably are not too concerned about being pulled over for going 20 or 30 over the speed limit. Everyone pretty much does it. You basically get run off the road if you don't. And besides, like, I'm a pretty good person. It's not that big of a deal. Maybe you forget to tithe for a few months. Like, you kind of know that the church counts on it, even that it's part of the covenant you made when you agreed to join the church. But like your money's kind of tied up in some other things right now. You needed to fix something around the house or fix your car, reinforce that vacation budget a little, or treat yourself to a few nice dinners. Like, it's okay, though, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter that much. If someone with more money is going to make up the difference in December anyway. <laughs> we kind of think that we can gossip about other people, talk bad about other people. Like, we know God doesn't want us to. But, like, it doesn't really matter that much, does it? God has more important things to worry about. We might recognize our own attitude in Moses if we pay close attention. On some level, we kind of think that we can decide for ourselves which rules apply or don't apply to our lives. Underlying all of this is the Western world's picture of the rugged individual, blazing his own path in life, deciding for herself what is good and true. But the rugged individual is more a vision of the ideal Western person. It doesn't really have much to do with God's program for the world. It's true, yes, each person is made in the image of God and of incalculable worth, True, each person has certain rights and responsibilities and a degree of autonomy over herself or himself. But God's program for the world is as much about a covenant community as it is about the salvation of individuals. And so Moses, the lone wolf, deciding for himself what is necessary or not, is held responsible for not keeping God's covenant in his family. 
So God will cut him off, just like he told Abraham. Moses needs to be part of God's covenant people if he thinks he's going to stick up for them to Pharaoh. So Zipporah, Moses' wife, acts quickly to save Moses from judgment. She grabs a flint knife, holds her son down, and circumcises him. Then touching Moses' feet with the foreskin, she says, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. It's finished. The deed is done. The blood of the circumcision has set things right for Moses. His family is restored to God's covenant community by the blood of this circumcision. Moses' life is spared. Now, throughout history, even to the present day, there has been a concerted effort by theologians to downplay the role of Zipporah in this story. One commentator described her as moody in this scene. Another suggested that the only reason she was allowed by Moses to circumcise their son was because their son by this time was a young man, and so Zipporah wouldn't have been strong enough to hold him down. Moses, the stronger one, had to hold him down while Zipporah circumcised him. Otherwise, Moses Moses would have uh, done it himself. After all, she wasn't just a woman. She was an outsider. She was not a Hebrew. She was... I can't read my writing. (laughs) Kenite. Yes, she was a Kenite woman. (laughs) She couldn't possibly have known herself that this was what was required to save Moses. Moses must have told her what to do. Maybe you'll say I'm biased, but I don't see that anywhere in the text. In fact, in Hebrew, the only two names in this text are Zipporah and God. Moses and his sons are not named. Their names do not appear in the Hebrew text. It's just he or him. It's a little ambiguous. In fact, people really struggle with uh, who these pronouns even refer to. So this suggests to me that this story is as much about Zipporah acting on Moses' behalf as it is about God coming to kill Moses for not keeping the covenant. Now think about it. If there was an underlying streak of rugged individualism in Moses, if he thought for a moment that he could decide on his own what is right and necessary, then it is altogether appropriate that as he faced death, he would be utterly dependent on the actions of another person to save him. So maybe instead of trying to downplay her role or explain it away like many commentators have done and continue to do, we ought to be open to the possibility that God uses the very people who we would consider to be weak or insignificant to save the people who seem strong and important. God uses the so-called moody, foolish, Kenite woman to save her wise Hebrew husband. Now, this is surprising in Moses' day, but it shouldn't really surprise us all that much. 
After all, rugged individuals that we are, we nonetheless confess in faith that we have been saved by the blood of a lamb, Jesus Christ. Now, in the same way that Zipporah stepped in to shed the blood of her son and restore Moses to God's covenant community, so God gave his son, whose blood was shed for the complete forgiveness of our sins and makes us part of a covenant community. It's finished, Jesus cried out on the cross. The deed is done. The blood of Christ shed on the cross has set things right so that we can be part of God's covenant community. The Apostle Paul recognizes that this sounds foolish, at least as foolish as a Kenite woman saving the renowned leader of God's people. Paul writes the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We are people who like to think we can pretty much decide for ourselves how we ought to live. Like Moses, we were in need of someone to act on our behalf, to keep God's covenant obligations, and to remind us again and again that God's intentions for us have less to do with rugged individualism and more to do with life together in a covenant community. This is what we celebrate at baptism. The washing of water symbolizes being cleansed by the blood of Christ as we welcome an utterly dependent baby into the covenant community. And then it's in this community that God cultivates in us a life of Christian character and virtue. Todd Bolsinger is a Christian author and speaker. He's done some speaking in the area. Uh, he's written a book called It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian. In this book, he talks about Howard and Alice Thomas. Todd met Howard and Alice when he was a university student, right at that age when a person is kind of out on their own as an individual for the first time. They met at a church meeting. At the end of their first meeting, Howard and Alice prayed passionately and tenderly for like a dozen or more people, none of whom were related, part of their own family. Afterward, Todd went up to them. He said, I am so deeply touched by the way you pray for these people. It's like the way I picture parents praying for their children. Todd recalls that his own family went through a lot of turmoil when he was a child. They stopped being part of a church as well, so he hadn't experienced this kind of communal prayer. Howard looked at Todd, having just met him for the first time, and he said, we will pray for you every day. What's your name, son? Howard and Alice put a picture of Todd on their refrigerator. Then when he got married, a picture of his wife and then the kids. And they prayed for Todd's family every day until they died. Todd writes that all those family members they prayed for now confess Christ as their Savior. And they're part of a community of believers. He attributes this, in no small part, to their faithful witness through prayer. Folks, when we talk about the importance of God's covenant, this in part is what God is holding out for us. This is part of what God offers us, 
a place where faith and love and character and Christian virtues can be cultivated and modeled for each other. Covenant is not just a matter of doing what God says. We are not compelled to follow the rules under threat of death. That is done. It is finished. Christ has kept the covenant on our behalf. Christ is our bridegroom of blood. So God welcomes us into the covenant community of believers, which, as it turns out, is God's answer to the rugged individualism that threatened Moses' life and that even isolates us still today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this, the gift of your word, and the way you reveal yourself to us through it. We pray now for the grace to receive what we have heard and to live in ways that honor you above all as we live together in this covenant community for the sake of the world you love. We pray this through Christ who has kept your covenant on our behalf. Amen.